To ship, of course. Welcome to episode two of the Ship Show, where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm Paul Reed, your host, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com, where I uh, I should probably blog more. Uh, my co-hosts this evening are Yusuf uh, at Build Scientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com, where I should probably also uh, blog more. <laughs> And uh, Cheese Plus, that's uh, Seth Thomas, and my Twitter handle is at Cheese Plus uh, on Twitter. And then uh, I don't have a blog, but I do have a domain name reserved for a blog that I should use more often. <laughs> and the uh, you 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 build cheese? Is that I, I do? Well, it's it's unfortunate because I do share my name with a cheese shop in San Francisco, so I do get some some tweets sent to me thanking me for my excellent cheese and wine, which I would really be proud if I actually had. Um, (laughs) But I take credit for it anyway. Well, cool. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about the DevOps role. It's kind of an uh, overloaded term. And I was actually just looking at the Wikipedia page today, and uh, I was surprised at what the page considers DevOpsers to be. I suspect actually a lot of DevOps people uh, would be uh, surprised as well. So we're going to try to answer the question, are DevOps people just release engineering for Web 2.0. Uh, but first, let's take a look at some of the news of the last couple of weeks in our uh, News and Views segment. So one of the big uh, things that happened this last week, I'm sure you two heard about it, was uh, GitHub raised, I think it was $100 million in um, funding from Andreessen uh, Horowitz, I believe, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage in the news, but it's, you know, get, everybody always talks, you know, GitHub's such a central part of what we do and and the, uh, a lot of company infrastructure in, in terms of release engineering stuff. So it was interesting to see them get that funding. What do you guys think they're going to do with it? I, I think it's it's particularly notable since this is the first time they've actually went outside to look for funding. That's that's what I what I gathered from from the whole thing. I mean, that's that's a lot of funding that was they were able to easily gather at a very. I mean, sometimes you're only pulling like you know in a in a round you know C or round B you're only pulling like you know ten twenty million dollars and they pulled a hundred million with you know in in a quarter so that's I think that's particularly notable especially for the first time they've actually asked for money yeah so that was the thing I thought was really interesting is that they hadn't asked for funding before this I remember that actually being they had a a video or maybe it was a, one of their about us pages and they were saying you know funding taken zero or VC dollars taken zero. And of course, you know, that's that's changed with this, obviously. But um, I also read, interestingly, they're evaluating it at between 500 and 800 million, which is which is interesting. Uh, do you think that's do you think I, that's accurate? Honestly, I think I think if Instagram can go for like 1.2 billion, um, GitHub should easily make, you know, it should, should be close to that because it's it's far more useful than Instagram ever was or will be. Um, and so it makes it makes me sad that that product companies especially you know i i have friends who work for them and they work on incredible products and they're not you know they're at about the 500 million or below mark and then a company who makes something that's kind of frivolous i'm not gonna say worthless but completely consumer uh user facing can pull that kind of can pull that kind of change granted from facebook but um, well, it's it's always one of those things now with that the the social network movie line you know you know what's cool a billion dollars and and I'm I'm old enough to remember it from um, the mini me saying it 
from uh, Austin Powers. <laughs> uh, that's what I always think of. Um, so, any ideas though? Uh, I, the big thing was, what are they going to do with it? What do you guys think they're going to do with it? I, right. I think they're going to continue to grow. Uh, you know, build uh, on their uh, existing rock solid services. I think. Um, they're probably going to look into uh, branching out into a GitHub enterprise. That, that's something that uh, I don't know if there are a lot of enterprise-sized companies out there that, that know about GitHub or that, that use it. And uh, I, I think that's probably going to be their, their next move. And, and GitHub Enterprise is their on-site you know, on GitHub variant, right? Kind of like Google used to with their Google for Enterprise where they gave you a machine and everything was in-house. Is that it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like GitHub in a box. I mean, it's it's all the things that you get from GitHub, but you get to host it locally. Um, you got to you got to pay them a pretty chunk of change first. But uh, step one, get GitHub. Step two, put it in a box. Step yeah, three, put your source in a box. Exactly, exactly. Box. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. You, there's there's a step in there where you pay them lots of money first. Um, <laughs> right. A requisite step. Right. Right. Uh, well, cool. Well, interestingly, on the same note, Perforce and Assembla also announced something, a new service today that for up to 20 users, you can deploy Perforce in the cloud as well as Assembla has a bunch of team-associated uh, tools to do agile type stuff. I thought it was actually interesting. Their news came on the heels of the GitHub announcement. And it's interesting. I, I, the reason I, I mentioned it is uh, I thought it was interesting that you see actually a lot of these core infrastructure things being moved to the cloud and i find it even more interesting that people aren't afraid of that or concerned of that like that's totally normal i i can remember five to seven years ago no one would ever think about putting source control git or perforce or anything else in the cloud for the security reasons i mean all the all the reasons that people always sort of question but now there's offerings for you know whichever version control system you want whichever you know all in the cloud all managed all backed up all that kind of stuff it's interesting to see that. I, I think the I think the assembler move is is particularly interesting. I mean, Perforce definitely feels. I don't want to say feels the heat. That that seems a bit there. I, I in my in my mind, GitHub and Git and versus Perforce that that kind of they serve completely different markets for the most part. Um, at least in, at least in my mind and my experience, they've been there's not a lot of overlap there because mm -hmm. of the types of content that you're you're pushing into revision control. But Perforce definitely feels the heat of GitHub a little bit, and they wanna they wanna be competitive. Oh, uh, I think they, I think they feel it a lot. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, there was a demo that we viewed, and they they've been. Um, I, I actually think it's rolled out of the 2012.1 version, uh, the Perforce sandbox stuff, which uh -huh. is basically their version of distributed version control, but still using all of the Perforce. I mean, it's all it's all Perforce stuff, right? Um, yeah. So I, I think it's accurate to say they they definitely do feel the heat. And, and they're trying. They're responding to it in the marketplace. I'm not sure if they feel the. So, so I guess my my concern is: do they feel the heat? Do they are they actually feeling the heat financially, or is it just a momentum? Because Perforce for a long time didn't do a lot of marketing. They didn't have to. They had they had niche customers in you know uh, like PCB manufacturing, mm -hmm. um, you know uh, semiconductor space, um, like AMD and some other big you know semiconductor folks are big Perforce customers. They've got Google. Um, and then, from my experience, the, ga the video game industry is pretty much, they've got down pat. There isn't a game studio that I am aware of that doesn't use Perforce. Um, just, you know, so they, they kind of have a, they kind of have a lock and they don't have to do a lot of publicity for that because they're just, they've got so much inertia in those, those niche markets. But it seems like they're trying to, they want to make themselves a GitHub. And I think that would be great, but it's going to be really hard given their licensing model to make a, 
a true GitHub competitor. Um, they do they do do free for open source, which I love. They're they're really awesome about that. But I'm I, I think they're gonna they're gonna hit a wall with their particular licensing model. Um, yeah. Well, so what's interesting is that this announcement actually is for up to twenty users, totally free. So you could do like you know as as long as you have twenty users or less, that's all free. And also, I guess the the workflow tools are all free as well. Uh, which is pretty interesting. I, I think they're responding to kind of GitHub's like if it's open source, it's on, you know, right. it's free. They're, that's their answer to that. Um, and it's it, you know, it's it, to your point. There's a lot of you get the sense when it's open source. Like I, I've heard the sentiment on Twitter and stuff where people say, well, you know, if your open source project isn't on GitHub, I don't care. Uh, and that's that's a hard kind of hurdle to get over. So that is, I mean, I think they're attacking it from a different angle. That's and that's and that's true and to an extent the the GitHub. So even if you have twenty users free, um, and I, I'll preface this by saying I'm an unabashed Perforce fan. When you know for the for at least the problems that I've had to solve in the past. So I'm I'm a huge huge Perforce supporter. But the problem they have is their licensing model is one really totally and completely worth it. It's expensive, but it's it's worth it. The the problem they have is that GitHub. If you're open source, there's no 20 user limit. It doesn't even matter. I mean, it's we're talking right. complete. I mean, the entire world can do pull requests on you. So we're talking, you know, millions of potential users, and that I think the kind of the pull request model that GitHub has in place. I mean, granted, it's a Git thing, but how GitHub presents it makes it incredibly collaborative. Now, if Perforce you have a small team, it's perfect. But the second you want to kind of open it up to the entire world. Um, and you want to have just random people who are using your projects, you know, say, hey, I've written all this code. You know, it's, it's a lot easier with, the, with how GitHub has it set up right now. And if Perforce can compete, I think it would be awesome. Yeah, I th- well, and the other thing is, too, I mean, when you have projects like the Linux kernel using it and by implication kind of pushing it, it that's, mm-hmm. it's hard to argue with that, right? Um, that's, and that's true. Um, but even, just, even, oh, go ahead. I just, oh, no, I was just, now I have this image of Linus Torvald saying, not nice things since well he hasn't so so that's a funny thing you mentioned the the github you know that they use github but they don't actually use the traditional pull request model that that you actually see in most projects because linus only wants you know only wants kind of like diffs like he just wants he just wants patch files um so you actually use the built-in git kind of pull request not the actual github model because when you use that it does some it does some different slightly different things and so you have to actually create patch files to submit against the kernel. So even though they're publicizing it, they're not actually doing it the way that I guess you're, you know, the, the large momentum of, of popular users would be. Well, yeah, no, I remember that he published a rant on that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so. He only publishes rants. That's yeah, what it's touche, yes, yes. Uh, all right, that's the news for this week. Stick around. What exactly makes a DevOps engineer? Next up on The Ship Show. So for our discussion tonight, we were going to talk about uh, the DevOps role, and it's it's kind of a question that I have often wondered. You know, have, uh, being someone who has more of a background in uh, release engineering and software that you know you typically put on a CD. I actually I have a 
box software from my my first gig, uh, and that role has been changing. So I always used to ask, are DevOps people just release engineers in the Web 2.0 world? No. We start, <laughs> all right. We started talking about Seth and I started talking about it, and it sounds like. You have an opinion, Seth. So tell me where I, I'm wrong. I do. I do. So no, I don't think you're wrong. Um, a lot of the a lot of the perception of DevOps is that kind of you see it talked about with companies like oh, I'm trying to think of like the popular like Netflix has a lot of stuff. Etsy uh, puts a lot of stuff out there, and they are very much they are very much web. I, I hate saying the term web 2.0, but they are very much you know the the kind of for, forefront of web companies right now. So my experience is again coming from the coming from you know a game industry perspective where I was a release engineer, but I was also the DevOps guy. I think that so. So what? But actually, let me ask you something. What makes you say that you were the DevOps guy at a at, at a gaming studios? That's ve- that's even more box software model than a lot of actually you know. So I, I'm thinking like VMware or Mozilla or Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Even even they are you know all that stuff you download right or you you right. don't go to. But games you still go to the store for. So what DevOps stuff were you doing for for gaming studios? So DevOps specifically in the game space. So so to to further specify my background, it was for online games. So okay, okay. MMORPGs. So you're actually doing not necessarily a continuous release model where every commit goes to production like Etsy, but you are doing a you you know you've got continuous builds, you've got continuous deploys, you've got scheduled releases, but they're frequent. So maybe twice, three times a week. There is very much a DevOps mentality in place in the, in those specific companies. Again, not your your typical like let's just say single player game company. So like uh, I'll pick an example like the Batman Arkham City Arkham Asylum series. That's a game you build it, you build it, you ship it once, and then you do maybe ship some DLCs. But the nature of gaming, even for the single player model, has changed tremendously because you're continuing to support releases after. They've shipped. Whereas at one point in time, adding updates, you know, to to say a game was was very difficult. Now you get a game day one; it's got updates already. Right. So a lot of these. I, I, by the way, I have to. T- I hate that. I hate when I get a new game and I sit down and I have to wait like forty minutes to download. Like, but, can you fix fix that, please? Yeah, but but you should appreciate that because that means that you you are getting so it, it saves game companies a little bit of face. So you can ship a game. With a few bugs, or at least a few low-level bugs, mm-hmm. you know that aren't they don't really get up to your A B level. But before release comes, you've still got you know once you've got the game certified by say like Microsoft or Sony, uh, you know or Nintendo, your big you know your big three. Once you've got it certified, you can still add some updates. So before it gets into gamers' hands, you can have a better or fixed copy of the game. So it's it's although gamers may see this as a, oh my god I've got to download an update. If you think about it, you've given the game developers maybe potentially two to three more months of time to work on the game and polish it up before you actually play it. So I, I, I actually, it's interesting you mentioned that, Seth, because I, I really, you know, I can remember a number of uh, issues that happened in the, uh, in the gaming industry that uh, could have totally benefited from this. The big thing that comes to mind is the, I don't know if you remember, the Grand Theft Auto San Andreas scandal that caused yeah. the, uh, the rating on the game to go up because of some... Mm-hmm. Uh, some sort of a hack that somebody developed. Uh, yeah, the hot, the hot coffee mod. It, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the pixelated so, boobs. I remember yes. those. I mean, it, it's you, you know, when you think about it, the, the, it may be that you know if we had if, if GTA uh, San Andreas had some DLC, they they may have been able to avoid whatever you know cost they had to put into to rolling out. Um, well, first 
pulling the uh, original copy off shelves and then putting out a new copy of it. So, yeah. So the, the interesting, at least with that one, is that the, the I guess the, the dark area there, the, like the black magic, can still happen on the PC platform. Because once you put something on the PC, you give people typically way more control over it than you desire. That's, that's, that's something that's still really, really hard to prevent. Now, now, for consoles, it's a lot easier to lock them down and say, oh, you can't play unless you've added this DLC or unless you've accepted this update. It's not quite, like with PC, there's still a... Right. I mean, well, they have all the encryption stuff on the, yeah, the consoles. I mean, you, you've got a, yeah, and you've got some, I mean, people like add a little bit of DRM, but it's a lot harder on the PC because, you know, you have the whole platform to yourself, whereas on any of the other, you know, 360, PS3, you don't have that all available. Well, so back to the DevOps discussion. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, 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 it's, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to ask Yusuf, I mean, I feel like, it, it's funny, I feel like, you know, kind of the old curmudgeon with the get off my lawn, kind of when it comes to this topic, I really do feel like I'm a release engineer. And having said that, I, I have also started describing some of the things I do in a DevOps context because you really see people who are looking for someone to play that role. And in fact, what I, I said earlier, I was looking at the, the uh, Wikipedia page just to see what they said about it. And you know, it was interesting, the things that they talk about a DevOps person being responsible for are the same things that we were responsible for as release engineers. So I'm curious, you know, Yusuf, how do you, do you feel like you're Doing more DevOpsy stuff these days, or I think I mean in, in roles um, as a release engineer, I've, I've pretty much always done some aspect or some level of DevOps. But but one thing that I wanted to add is to, to me, DevOps is really a culture. It's a it's a it's a uh, well, uh, you know, yeah. Seth, you said that too. I was going to ask. It said DevOps mentality. You use that phrase, and I was going to ask yeah. both of you, like, what does that mean? And so, Yusuf, you were you were saying, yeah, it's it's a culture. It's a culture in, in how you're you're working with uh, cross functional teams, and I, I really think that the, the 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 DevOps engineer, if you if you can call uh, a, a person a DevOps engineer, um, that's, that's what of, I am. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually my title. <laughs> Is, is kind of a conduit between um, different departments. So QA, development, um, operations, uh, even on the business side, you know, your product owners, uh, project management and such. So I, I, I do agree with, with, with Seth that there is some sort of a, a DevOps mentality. Now, a lot of the uh, articles and, you know, presentations that have been given on DevOps kind of really promote synergy between, you know, both teams, bringing down walls, not having to sit and say, you know, or shaking your fist at ops if you're a developer or vice versa, and uh, really, you know, well, getting in there and understanding what each team uh, is, is trying to do. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to develop, deliver a product and, and make money for the company. And you know, play, Playing the devil's advocate for a moment, yeah. um, release engin- you know, that was the role, or at least I always felt was the role of release engineering as well. So what makes an engineer, a DevOps engineer, as opposed to a release engineer, or is it just... just oh, I was going to say, it's, it's almost, in my experience, it's just the title on paper. It, you know, the, the, the kind of DevOps, like, the, you know, they show the little Venn diagram for DevOps, oh, uh-huh. and it, you, sit, you sit right in the middle between development, quality assurance, and ops, you know, essentially. And that's, you, you're right in that sweet spot where you communicate between all the groups. In my experience, when I've been a release engineer, again, this is at at game company specifically, delivering a you know delivering a regularly released online product, it, the the release engineer and DevOps roles were very. I mean, it was it, you could have you could have called it that at the time. It didn't have the buzzword attached to it. 
DevOps for a while was a buzzword and a lot of people didn't want to accept it. They're like, oh, that's a stupid thing. And then it wasn't really, the problem is you can't, some, you'll see like conferences, they'll be like, we'll teach you all about DevOps. And there's nothing really to teach about DevOps. DevOps, as, as was stated, is, is a culture. Um, it's something that you, you get the whole company to come around to. It's not necessarily a, you can't just like name somebody, like, like for example, my position is a development operations engineer. But you can't just say he's a DevOps guy in a company that doesn't have a doesn't have an understanding of what that is. So it's like yeah, it's it's a developed culture over time. So you know what's interesting to me is is you know the the more I, uh, this conversation unfolds, it just seems like we've uh, you know you both have spoken to culture, and uh, I, I think it was uh, one of you said something about you know the increased you know release rate and and all of those things, and it seems like. DevOps is is kind of a part of the whole agile movement, but it's still the same role that release engineers. It's like release engineers if you're doing waterfall. Uh, so I, I can say, continue to be my my old crusty guy with my shotgun on my lawn <laughs> if I'm doing waterfall or something, right? But if I'm doing agile, then I'm supposed to say I'm doing DevOps. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's ans- it's ancillary to, to agile software development. I mean, it it, it fits in well with it, but I I don't really see. Why you know if you're still doing waterfall uh, where where appropriate, why DevOps can't fit in with that uh, yeah. development methodology? I, I I don't think it's something that's just fixated on agile, but again, cross-functional communication is is a big thing. I think it's 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 really easy to uh, to say, well, you know, they're all one company. Most people are going to want to talk to to get stuff done, but the reality is is that you know you end up with people in their silos and um, I, I mean, obviously there's a difference between talking to somebody and communicating with them. So I think DevOps really encourages you know getting that communication, you know, building rapport across teams to, to get an appreciation across the board. So I think there's actually so 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 you have touched on something very important. So when you say so it, it's it's about silos and it's it's about a, a you know a company wide thing. When you have, in my experience, when I've been a release engineer, I have been a release engineer doing very much DevOps things. I mean, I've been doing release management, but I've also been doing continuous integration, continuous build systems, which definitely fall into release engineering, but automation is just a, is just a stone's throw away from, from DevOps. I mean, you're, you're in the same, you're in very much the same field, so automating the building of machines, building of environments. So you have this very close thing, but when I was a release engineer, it was in companies that had firmly entrenched silos. So as a, as a DevOps person in my, in my current role, I can do anything I want. I can touch code bases on GitHub. I can touch the, you know, the actual hardware servers in the data center if I need to. You know, I, can, I have access to all the things that I need to have access to that I have knowledge over. Whereas in these other companies where I was just a release engineer, I had the generalist knowledge of all of the other systems was unable to touch them or unable to enact certain changes because they were so siloed. Um, and so, I was, so, so when I was a release engineer, I was just a release engineer, even though I knew how to do many things and would tell people how to do you know, their, you know, things on their end. I didn't have the, uh, I wasn't empowered. Whereas when I've been a DevOps person, I've been entirely empowered. I've, been, I've had access to anything that I've needed um, well, so you know, you know, that's really interesting because you know we keep coming back to DevOps mentality and sort of the cultural thing, and and you were both of you said now it's kind of a company thing. What's interesting to me about that is you know the the best release engineers that I've I've worked with 
could actually sit down and look at breakages in continuous integration and fix them, or at least email and say, hey, I think the bug is here and here. There are certain release engineers that uh, that's not what, you know, their their main focus may be more operational, or they are good at herding cats, as this term goes, and that's what they do, but they're not as developer-minded as other release engineers are. And, and it's same, actually the same thing with QA. A lot of the best QA people I ever worked with, you know, they're writing frameworks and they're, they're looking at the, the task of quality assurance from a very actually developer-esque angle. I wonder if part of it is actually just in, in addition to the cultural part saying, no, actually we want everybody that's in a support capacity, whether it be QA or ops or release engineering, those you know those parts of the process to still have a developer mindset and be able to have those skills so that you know if there's breakage on the CI uh, project somewhere they're not just like well not my problem I don't know I'm going home by you know part, I, I think part of it's very much that um, and then part of it is that the, the the release engineer or the DevOps guy in those scenarios is is kind of is kind of your he walks between the worlds so he can he can get a message from QA translate it to dev speak so that the devs one mm. you know, sometimes QA will report a bug and the devs will be like ah that's there's not enough what you know not enough proof not enough whatever so sometimes or, you- or even or and even not um, like translation but also like oh you know some developer was saying the message queue on this was broken and he knew it was going to be broken or and QA is filing a bug and it's like oh I can put these people together so they can talk exactly and sometimes it's just recognizing that because you are you're, and, that's, and it comes back to, especially with DevOps and release engineers, in my experience, they've been amazing generalists. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're not somebody who's like, I am the best C++ programmer in the world. They're, they're not that guy. They're the guy who, know, you know, who are familiar with working with like full stacks, Linux, Windows, Mac. They've dealt with you know, a variety of different build systems. They've, they've seen a lot of different things. And so they're kind of they're able to catch those kinds of problems on the edges where your average person would be like, ah, that's just a bug, you know, or that's just a you know false positive or something. And right. they'll actually look at it and they'll be like, oh, I've seen that before on this obscure, you know, Spark, you know, yada yada system. Right. Or I actually one in. thing, yeah, one thing I, I find a lot is because we deal with the continuous integration systems, we see a lot of bugs that. A developer may only see once every 50 builds, but if you do 100 builds or 200 builds a day, you see it four times a day, and you know exactly what that is. And maybe you've deployed the, you know, registry tweak to Windows to fix that or whatever it is, right? So there's a lot of that knowledge, too. Well, you've 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 seen, yeah, and like you said, you've you know you you've seen into the eye of the build system. So you've seen thousands upon thousands of builds. So you have a much keener eye for something an extra warning that's that's being pushed up to the right. top that your average developer will just you know completely ignore in their little console well so let me ask you guys this uh, do you think that release engineers and devops peoples do you think their skills and i'm leaving this kind of open ended are basically equivalent do you think that that they both have the same or should have the same skill sets and then if you, you if you don't think that, where do you think it would? Uh, what What are things that DevOps people can teach release engineers, and release engineers could teach DevOps people? <laughs> um, I, you know, I, that, that's a really interesting question, Paul. I, I, I think DevOps is, is like I said, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a cultural uh, it's a culture or a cultural standard. But the reality that I've seen is that a DevOps engineer tends to be more 
focused on the bigger picture and has some some uh, uh, additional skill sets, not necessarily technical skill sets, but uh, skill sets with regards to uh, you know communicating um, successfully across cross-functional uh, um, teams and such. So I, I think somebody who's a, a DevOps engineer can put their uh, project management hat on and, and or um, uh, you know shift into having to, to uh, fix uh, uh, bug fix you know production code or, or whatever it is that they're working on. So not to say that the release engineer can't do that stuff, but I, I think just from what I've seen, you know, a de- the DevOps uh, you know engineer has a lot more freedom to to do that, and there's also that expectation that they're um, they're going to be doing that. Seth mentioned something very interesting where he said that he now has kind of a lot more freedom to kind of jump across various areas. And I, I think traditionally release engineers don't really get that much leeway, um, mainly because I, I think release release engineering tends to be the type of thing that's that's thought of well, you know, the the code is done, it's been tested, let's uh, let's cut a build and uh, uh, ship it out there. So, yeah. Seth, what do you think? So, as I was going to tie to use this point, so, so release engineering, I feel, at least, again, in my experience, this has been something that's been one of the last things adopted by a company. So they, they weren't really comfortable having somebody titled as a release engineer. They always wanted, you know, some junior programmer to be doing it. It was always an afterthought, which was unfortunate mm-hmm. because release engineering is so... We actually so talked important. about this last week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so very important, and so they, it's it's sometimes an afterthought. And DevOps is very much the same, is almost the same way. So you you some, you often get that. So that's why the release engineer, because he's kind of the catch-all. He is. Um, so sometimes you have a very you know a, a very developer-minded release engineer, and you sometimes get some very elegant build systems, but sometimes they get you know they're not built with operational stability in mind. I come from a different side, so when I'm in the DevOps, I'm very much more the ops side. But as Yusuf mentioned, you have that kind of complete picture. So having been a release engineer has better informed my DevOps experience because you're, you know, you're watching the release engineering group, you're watching the actual engineering group, you're watching marketing, you're kind of keeping your, you're knowing what's important and what's priority for the company and then using your skills to you know, kind of best fill in because you don't have a specific, you know, DevOps, like I said, you can go anywhere. So... You could be setting up servers somewhere. You can be building tests. You can be automating, you know, just developer sandbox setup. And that's kind of that generalist background helps serve both the release engineer and the and the DevOps uh, role. In my in my experience, it's been that's been exactly the kind of person you need, not somebody who's done just one thing for fifteen years. Well, so you know, I gotta say, I'm gonna be kind of the curmudgeon of this. I. I'm not convinced that the DevOps role isn't just the new hot hotness term for release engineers, or at least uh, everything that you guys have said, like the best release engineers and my mentors have done all of that. And so it just sounds to me like it's it's the new, well, it's you know, a, it's, it's, a title, it's a title and culture difference, I think. Right. That's, but, that's almost purely what it is in my experience. But the one thing I'm looking forward to, I'm hoping this will generate some Twitter conversation. So I'm curious uh, if you have an opinion, to, uh, tweet us at Ship Show Podcast and uh, definitely join the discussion on this because uh, it's uh, certainly interesting and, and we're, we could talk about this for another hour, but we're out of time. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll get into it on, uh, more on Twitter, Seth and Yusuf. Oh, that may happen. Yeah. All right. We'll be back in a sec.
edition of the Ship Show for this week, and I think Yusuf is going to take us through a new tool that he has been looking over and has some uh, some opinions on. Take yeah, away, Yusuf. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Runduck this week. Straight off our website, Runduck is a open source process automation uh, and command orchestration tool uh, with a web console. So I've been using it for probably about a month now. Some kind of interesting um, stuff about it. It's uh, actually forked from a project called Control Tier. What language is it in? It's in Java. It runs on any, any platform with a, with a JVM. Some of the stuff that I like about it is uh, it's got a, a RESTful API in front of it. It integrates um, beautifully with Jenkins. Probably the, the, the coolest feature that Rundeck has is um, this thing called an option provider where you can provide it like a JSON array and it can take that and, and generate options uh, for you to uh, so say for example you have build artifacts and you, you your artifact repo for example can can generate a list of your build artifacts in JSON you can pass that to Rundeck and it'll take that list and do whatever you want uh, with it um, the other cool thing that it has is it's kind of a I guess a callback feature where um, I guess they, they call it webhooks and the way that it works is so after you've finished doing your Rundeck process Rundeck can actually call anything that you, you want it to call. So, you know, if you're using Jenkins or some sort of continuous integration um, server, you can have it, Jenkins basically um, call Rundeck and Rundeck can go and deploy and install your your software um, setup environments. And then after that whole process is done, you can have Rundeck call Jenkins back or call anything else to, to finish up uh, uh, whatever process you're, you're setting up. So it, it really works well for um, setting up deployment pipelines and such. The thing that I don't like about it um, is that uh, when you're setting up uh, uh, the, the host that you're going to be deploying to, as far as I know, that needs to be done uh, manually. I think they they, uh, they allow you to define um, host names and descriptors about your host in XML, YAML. I don't know if they allow you to do it in JSON, but as far as I know, that has to be done you know, by the, by the command line, which, which I guess is fine. You could script it. You could, you could probably write your own um, tool to, to do that, but they don't really provide you anything with their web interface. To or, or if you have a standard VM image or machine image that you're deploying, you could always make that part of the, the right. basic image, right? Yeah. And then is the, that how they're assuming you'd kind of do that, actually? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. The, the documentation doesn't really get into that. Um, on, the, uh, on the transport side, everything's done via SSH, um, so there's no mo- no middleware like ActiveMQ or any kind of messaging component to, that uh, supports that uh, transport mechanism there. Do you have to use the web interface? Because I was actually looking at, the, at this uh, before well, the show. They, they actually provide you with a set of pretty nifty command line tools uh, that allow you to interface with your host. I think the, the, the web interface is for just for folks who you know, maybe feel a lot more comfortable dealing with web interfaces as opposed to the um, command line. So, so, so you could actually. You were saying this integrates with Jenkins. You don't need to actually use the Rundex web interface. You can integrate it with Jenkins and just keep it. Keep using your Jenkins web interface. Is that you? You can do that. You can set it up. So, you know, when you set up your jobs in Jenkins, you Jenkins is what they call an option provider. So, okay, uh, you'll you'll basically um, tell. Jenkins to call uh, a specific job in Rundeck and it will execute that based on um, uh, whatever options you provide to uh, to Rundeck from from Jenkins. Cool. Well, certainly it's uh, it sounds like an interesting tool, especially if you've got uh, a ton of machines lying around and you need to 
run commands on a lot of them at once. I, I see they give a couple of interesting examples of where you don't have to set up a lot of infrastructure to just go run, you know, uh, for inventory reasons and things like that. You know, sometimes you just want to run like, you know, RPM-QA on all your machines real quick. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. All right. Well, so that's going to wrap it up for this week uh, on the Ship Show. If uh, you want to communicate with us, our email address is crew at the shipshow.com. Certainly shoot us email at shipshowpodcast. Uh, we've actually had some interesting feedback from episode one, and we're working on getting some guests on the show to interview uh, and looking forward to that. So we'll be posting more information about that shortly. So from uh, San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And from Austin, Texas, this is uh, Seth Thomas signing off. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>